You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. I'm the pastor here at City Church. We're going through the book of Acts, just verse by verse, just working through uh, this important book of the Bible in the New Testament that kind of launches the rest of the scriptures we find after the book of Acts. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, here we are mid-March. We're in the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 today. Our London team just got back, our London mission strip team, and our team that's in Berlin right now gets back tomorrow. Uh, so a lot of neat things happening internationally from our church as we believe we need to take the good news uh, to the ends of the earth as the Lord called us to. And also we had family church here today. Their middle school and high school ministry at 8.30. They took up the entire front center and these two rows over here. Uh, they have come to the capital, their capital city, they're from West Palm, have come to their capital city in Florida uh, on mission trip this week to share the gospel, invite people all over town to our Easter service, uh, do service projects, just all kind of neat stuff. So be praying for them. Uh, just really cool they would choose on their spring break to come to Tallahassee, partnering with our church. We have a great friendship between the two churches, and they're going to do some really neat work this week. And I'm convinced the Lord will bring some people to our Easter service to the Civic Center that they invited this week uh, while they were going around town. So I'm going to pray for us, pray for them, and then we're going to jump into uh, our next stop in the book of Acts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for your word that you've given to us. What a gift of grace it is. We have the words of our God not only available to us, but in front of us right now through our Bibles. And I ask that we found faithful and be good stewards of that reality that we have your words. I ask that it will lead us uh, to understand your love for us more, to believe the gospel more, and to want to live our lives for you, the one who loved us first. We pray for family, church, and the students who are here this week. Lord, I ask that they can have a big impact on our city and that from reaching their capital, it can impact the entire state uh, to the nation, to the world, because of the work that they're going to do here in Tallahassee. So I just ask you to keep the enemy out of all their plans, out of the city in general, out of our church, and, and be with those students and their leaders as they're here this week. We are grateful for them and the friendship you provided between our churches in West Palm and here in Tallahassee. I ask you to all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today, may we all be found faithful, and I ask that what we hear from the scriptures, scriptures will lead us to want to live lives that honor you. And that's all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what's happening here is Stephen had just given uh, this really kind of brought the fire intense sermon where he's talking about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and also lets the people know, the Jewish people who are rejecting Christ, that they're the ones who crucified him. That it was their actions, it was their sin, it was their even people uh, that did this. I mean, he's bringing the heat. And he just got done doing that. And we see in verse 54, chapter 7, that when they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, just got done preaching a sermon, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What a vision. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here are people whose teeth are gnashing and they are upset with him and he's in this peaceful moment looking into heaven and seeing Jesus. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears. Imagine that, they're running and they're yelling so loud, they're going like this while they're running. Probably look like complete fools, but the Bible includes that little detail. And together rushed against him. And then we see a tragedy happen, the first martyr of the martyring of one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, or, or sisters in Christ. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, a sign of approval, a sign of completion, by this guy named Saul, who apparently was very much behind this. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, 
Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep, which is a Bible way of saying that he died. So you're our first ever martyrdom that's ever taken place in the faith, and it's important that it's included, that God wants it here in his story to show us what he was going to do with it. See, first, the death of Stephen mirrors Jesus. Like what he cries out to remind us of Jesus being crucified. He asked God to forgive his killers. He asked God to receive his spirit. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Here Stephen is a Christ-like figure. I'm not saying he's Christ. He's a Christ-like figure loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, giving grace to those who maybe you feel have wronged you, just like the grace he has received from God. So here this Christ-like figure is pointing us over and over again as the mission gets, continues to happen. We see in Acts, it continues to point us to Christ as the source over and over again. And we see this mob come at him. They're described as people who have the gnashing of teeth. In Job 16.9, it says, his anger tears at me and he harasses me. He gnashes his teeth at me, talking about the enemy. Psalm 112, my enemy pierces me with his eyes. The wicked one will see it and be angry. He will gnash his teeth in despair. And the same word now is being used in this story. Patrick Schreiner writes that the Gospels portray the gnashing of teeth as a response to those excluded from the kingdom. So it is of the enemy. It is the enemy coming at him and trying to stop the work of God. Yes, Stephen is murdered, he is killed, but we see that he's peaceful and he's gazing. How could that be? Because he knows the promises of God and he knows where he's about to end up with Jesus forever. And how amazing that God gives him that assurance and that reminder. It might say, man, it must be nice on your deathbed to have heaven open up and Jesus standing there giving you a thumbs up. That might increase my faith a little bit more. And I understand that. But the reality is the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and his ascension is all the thumbs up that we need. That Jesus has kept his, that God has kept his promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That he has died, that he has risen, and one day he will come again. But we see an interesting part of the story that we have to make sure we don't miss. And that is that Jesus is standing the visions of Jesus so far in heaven have been he's seated at the right hand of God. Usually we see the Son of God portrayed in heaven as that he's sitting down. But why now is he standing up? And does that detail even matter? Well, it does. Because here Jesus is Stephen's vindication. He is the one who is standing to welcome him home. Stephen was guilty and condemned by human court, but he is completely innocent in God's court. And the good news is, for all those who know Jesus in here today, so are you. You are innocent in God's court. You weren't before Jesus, you've sinned against God. You committed wrong against him. You said, God, I don't want to worship you, I want to worship other things, I want to worship myself instead. But God in his grace, rather than punishing us as our sins deserve, punished Jesus instead. And Jesus being the risen one who rose from the grave three days later, now is the one who stands as our vindication. You don't have to vindicate yourself. In fact, when it comes to your standing with God, you can't vindicate yourself. God is the one who pronounces it. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That if God's for us, that no one can be against us, that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Stephen's innocent, even though guilty in the human court, you are innocent because Jesus was guilty in your place. He says in Luke 12, this is Jesus, and I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. 
But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. And here's Stephen, the one who acknowledges Jesus before others. And here he is now being acknowledged by God once and forever for all eternity. In Philippians, we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is a position of accomplishment, of authority. And now here he's standing at the right hand of the Father, showing his power and ultimate authority once and for all. So we can say the main point of this vision he has, that Stephen has, is no matter what's going on, that Jesus is saying, I'm in charge and in approval over what Stephen just said. I approve of every word that just came out of Stephen's mouth. Stephen, welcome home. All of God's promises have been answered, yes, in Jesus Christ, and now you're realizing them. But the story goes on and it gets rough. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're introduced to this character that's gonna become very prominent in the rest of the Bible named Saul. And these murderers laid their garments at Saul's feet. So Saul, that shows us in this culture, in this context, is overseeing the actions that just took place. And he's back in chapter eight, verse one. Saul agreed with putting him to death. And then on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, it says, were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now back in chapter one, I don't want to assume that, that anyone, everyone knows this because we might not have been here that week. But in Acts chapter one, here Jesus tells the disciples that you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem starting here, and then it's gonna go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here we had this persecution take place and we're told the believers are scattered and where are they first scattered to? Judea and Samaria. Is as if God's hand is on this and orchestrating the entire thing. We see devout men buried, Stephen and mourn deeply over him. Their brother in Christ was now dead. He was asleep. He had been murdered. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. Think of this as evil here. Stones a man. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Why? Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he hated Christians because he hated the name of Jesus. So we have totally shifted gears in Acts. And the devil is absolutely out to destroy the church right now. And you might go, you know, like, hey, it's 2023. Do we really believe in a devil? Like, it's kind of allegorical, maybe a symbol of evil, but like, the whole, like, the devil stuff, we really buy into that. Well, I believe the devil is an actual real being and not an allegory or some kind of wordplay figure for two main reasons. And the first reason is because I actually believe in the authority of the scriptures, and the scriptures tell us, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but it really is that matter of fact for me, uh, that the scriptures tell us there is a devil, and if that's not good enough, Jesus himself believed there was a real devil. Uh, he actually spoke to the devil, was tempted by the devil, dealt with the devil. Uh, so the devil, even though it might not exactly resonate oftentimes with our kind of rational thinking of the day, if we believe that someone came back to life after being dead for three days named Jesus, we can believe there's also a devil when Jesus tells us there is. It doesn't take that much faith if you actually believe in Easter Sunday. It's important to know that there is a devil. And here's what John Stott says. The devil has overreached himself here in this story with Stephen and the, and, the, and the new disciples. His attack led to the opposite effect. Instead of smothering the gospel, it succeeds and only spreads. Schreiner adds, the plan of God pushes forward, but he never promised it would be without suffering and lament. 
The devil really is on the prowl seeking to devour, but we must believe that God is sovereign over all of that. And we're not told to live our lives fearful or scared when it comes to the devil, but to be alert, 1 Peter tells us. When, you're, when you first start driving, you don't want to be someone who drives a car scared. That's going to cause probably more anxiety and a car accident. And if you just drive fearful the entire time, rather, what do they tell you when you, if you look, think back in time, what do you learn when you first start driving? To be alert, to pay attention, to know your surroundings, to look around, uh, to not text and drive, all, all the things you're told today. Not be scared, but be alert. And that's the call for us as believers with the reality of the devil. Not to live in fear of the devil, because he is underneath the feet of Jesus. He has no authority over Christ. But the fact that we're aware and alert, that he's on the prowl seeking to devour his church and to keep the gospel from going forward. But as John Stott said, he thought he was going to smother it, but instead it's going out exactly as God had planted in Judea and Samaria. But the reality is for us, which is such good news, is that God's presence for us is found in Jesus Christ. And his presence can't be localized. It can't be contained now that he has risen and ascended. He reigns over all, and the Spirit now fills believers, God with us. He also mentions women in this text. He's kinda, it's not just a random just inclusion here. That Saul also persecutes them. He says in the text that he would enter house after house in verse 3, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Saul persecutes them too. And that's actually not just a random inclusion, but an active and important part of the mission. And here Saul knew to stop the movement meant also stopping the women, because from the very beginning of this movement, women were just as much a part of God's plan as men. You're going, okay, why even bring that up? Well, there can be sort of a, I don't know, a stereotype or a narrative, we can even call it, uh, towards evangelicals, which when I define evangelical, I don't mean in a political category. I mean what we believe to be true about Jesus and the good news of the gospel, evangel, good news, uh, and that they're anti-women, that it's misogynistic. Now, are there people who are misogynistic in every pocket of the world? Of course there are, but it's just easy to kind of pick up on that narrative that you know, Christianity is kind of a patriarchal religion, and, and the reality is when you read the New Testament, that's just not true. You look at the life of Jesus, it's just not true. The women were absolutely 100% included in everything that was happening, not, not as some kind of you know, just random favor, but because they were part of God's story and their giftings, their, their skill set, their passions, their desires, to use them to go spread the good news of the gospel. And why this is important to talk about is at this time in the first century, it was completely countercultural. So women weren't included in very much. They actually were oppressed. They actually weren't a part of the stories in the communities about what was happening. And here God is including them from the very beginning. And Saul, under the influence of the devil, knew. So he's not just persecuting men, he's persecuting women as well, because to stop the women, it's also to stop the gospel from going forward. I'd encourage you to read Rebecca McLaughlin's book called Jesus to the Eyes of Women, that shows through scriptures and history how the old story that the Christianity's a you know, man's religion is just completely untrue. And I think it'd be very helpful to see uh, how women perceive Jesus and how he perceived them. Verse four. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Here is Stephen killed, persecution happens, and they're scattered. Now in my human nature, I'd have been scattered to hide. I'd have gotten out of town. As long as I had my bracket with me, friends see a tournament, I'd just get me out of town, I'm good. But here, they go on preaching the word. It can't be stopped. What Satan tried to do is now fueling this going forward. Philip went down to a city in Samaria 
and proclaim the Messiah. That's the message, who Jesus is. Proclaim the Messiah to them. And the crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. We've talked about how God allowed these believers under the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to accomplish some certain signs and wonders to validate the message at this time. Uh, So for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And what's the response? Verse eight, what a prayer for Tallahassee. There was great joy in that city. What, What a simple sentence, but how profound at the same time that this was the result of the name of Jesus being made known in the city in Samaria, was that joy came into the community. Like, what a testimony of a church that we could hopefully say one day and look back and say, God has been so faithful here, we have seen joy happen in our community because of the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward. So here's Philip, who was not the apostle, it was an equivalent of a layman, to use those kind of words, And he is now going into Samaria, and the receptivity, the welcoming of the good news of the gospel that would bring joy to the people would come from the most unlikely place, Samaria. So they're also sending someone strategically in Philip who was a Hellenized Jew, which would basically mean he was a Jew that was more, a little more, we'd call it westernized today, (laughs) but their version of a little more westernized, uh, to a very Hellenized area. So it's called contextualization, taking people who speak the language, who know the culture, who can relate. And Ben Witherington says this, that Samaria was separated socially, geographically, and even religiously from their Jerusalem kin. So why is Samaria a big deal? Like, why is it frowned upon? Why would it be significant? Uh, These were people who generations ago were the northern kingdom, and they intermingled at that time with Canaanites, which had been strictly prohibited, people who were against the work of God, who were not God's people, and Samaritans now, because of all this and how they've been pushed aside by Jews, they had a different capital, they had different customs, they had different religious rituals, they had a different temple, so they were treated as, they were peop- as not being a part of God's flock. They were treated as, the, the words they would use back then, as half-breeds. They would say to eat with them, with a Samaritan, was like eating pork. Now today we'd be like, wow, eating pork? Please, take me to the Samaritans, right? Give give me some pulled pork. Uh, But pork was not to be eaten by the Jewish people at this time. Their daughters were called unclean. So to have any kind of interaction or mingling as a Jew with a Samaritan woman would have been viewed as something that God would not permit. So now here is the gospel showing up in that place, and it's being received. Because spiritually, before the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles, the south and the north kingdoms that have been separate and divided are gonna be reassembled together, not by borders, not by geography, not by Jew or Samaritan, not by ethnicity, but by the spirit of God. That he was gonna bring these two kingdoms back together spiritually in a way that they might not even realize at the time that was gonna be defined by Jesus rather than by any boundaries or any things of this world. You see, our place in Christ is not defined by anything other than Jesus himself. Not by borders, not by countries, not by ethnicities. It's defined by Jesus. And we already see that going into play right here as the gospel is going out. Taking it to Samaria, the place where maybe those would have thought was the last city that would have embraced, an area that would have embraced this good news. See, Satan will do everything he can to stop this mission. He doesn't want the northern and southern kingdoms reunited. He doesn't want the gospel message going forward. But Jesus is in such control of the story and his sovereignty and his ruling power 
that he already gave hints this would take place in Samaria to begin with. There's a famous story in John chapter four called The Woman at the Well, where Jesus goes and meets with a Samaritan woman, which again, she'd have been viewed as unclean, as someone not to associate with. Jesus goes right to her in the middle of the day, and she asks him a question. She says, since you seem to be this religious figure, I don't quite sure I know all, all about you yet, our people, the Samaritans, we worship on Mount Gerizim, because you know, we, we aren't allowed to participate in Jerusalem because we're viewed as half-breeds and all those things by you. So, so what they do? They made up their own way, which isn't okay either, to worship. They constructed their own God and their own way of doing things. He goes, your people, the Jews, worship in Jerusalem. What's the right way? Who's right, us or you? Y'all or us? And Jesus said, well, to answer your question specifically, the Jews are right, because Jerusalem is where God has designed the temple to, to, for people to worship. But a time is coming, and has now come, as in here we go, where it won't be Jerusalem or your mountain, where the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. I mean, it's not about a place. It's about a person. The people of God are going to be defined by heart change, not borders, geography, or ritual. And then here we are, the gospel going to that same city after Jesus, the one who told the woman that, has died for her sins, risen from the grave, ascended to heaven, and we see it going into play. It's incredible. What's happened here is that Stephen's death has ignited Acts 1-8. You'll be my witnesses. You're gonna go, and now it's happening. Isaiah 2, verse 3, written hundreds of years before, for instruction will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And here it is playing out right before their eyes. People were scattered and re realized that we don't even know their names. Outside of Philip, they don't tell us people's names. But we're here today by God's sovereignty because of those people who were scattered. If you're a Christian in this room today and you've given your life to Jesus, you don't think you can save yourself from your sins, only Jesus can do that for you. Like, we're here today because those no-name people had the courage to go with this good news and not be scattered to hide, but scattered to preach the gospel. And we don't know their names, but God knows their name, and God used them. In other words, there's no insignificant people when it comes, in, when it comes to God's kingdom and God's plan. There's not one Christian in this room who is insignificant in, in terms of being part of God's plan and God's design. Please never forget that. So a couple takeaways here that we see from this text. The first one is we see a new people. The gospel is the great equalizer. Samaritans, Jews, now united in Christ, the gospel going, knowing no borders, going forward. What, what a word we need today. With so much just intense division in our culture, with everybody just so mad all the time, people thinking enemies are just those that disagree with them. Friendships lost over elections. And it's been a wild time. But the gospel's a great equalizer. I'm not sure who first said it. It's been passed around pastors forever. But that at the cross, there's a level ground. There's a church plant in New Orleans called Level Ground. We've been a part of it. And the whole theme is in a really tough neighborhood. And the, the hope for the church was that people would view it as a level ground. Different classes, different people from different places, different backgrounds. Level ground when it comes to the church. No classes of people, all people who are found in Christ. Second thing is, these people believed in Easter. I'm a simple guy, and that's as simple as it gets. They believed in Easter. Christianity was not an accessory for them. 
Jesus was not a mistress. It wasn't a hobby. It wasn't just a family tradition. It wasn't a moral compass. They actually believed that Jesus was alive. And because of that, it changed everything about them. What a need we have in our community for people to move beyond thinking Jesus is nice or that Jesus is just good, but actually believing that he's alive and that changes everything for us. There's a passage of scripture that says, Christ when he, who, in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ who is your life. It's like it assumes that about us, that he is our life. And I think it's a lifelong journey. I don't think I'm there yet. But to be able to say that Christ is your life, not just a part of your life, like he is my life. That's a response to the reality of a God who came to rescue his people and rose from the grave proving it all was true and that it all worked. Because they believed what happened on that Easter Sunday, it drove them to abandon everything for the cause of Christ. The third thing, they're linked together. They had gospel urgency. They wanted to take this good news. They didn't scatter to hide, they scattered to go. Why? Because they believed in Easter. And they wanted other people to hear this good news of the gospel. The fourth thing is they were spirit dependent. They knew that nothing they could accomplish could take place apart from God. How could it? The local civil government was against them. The religious rulers were against them. There was an enemy on the prowl. Like every circumstance was against them. Yet it was going forward and moving. Why? Because the spirit of God filled them. There's nothing that can happen of eternal significance apart from God doing the work. For our church, for any church out there across the world that's meeting today, none of those happen has been by our strength. It's all because of the Spirit of God in us. It should create humility. It should create dependence. Here God is completely sovereign. We find the greatest threat to the life of the church after this point is Saul. Saul, the great persecutor of the church. We'll see in a couple cha- or the next chapter that not only is Saul stopped by God from persecuting the church in this historic story, but he also has his life changed by Jesus and goes and leads the missionary movement to the ends of the earth. And you think about what God has done. He takes the one persecuting the church, stops him, and then uses him to be the one leading the church. Two things there, one, God's grace is that big. And number two, even the most radical plan of Satan can't overthrow the plans of God. The fifth thing is they will be opposed. They'll be opposed. They're going to have suffering, persecution, martyrdom. It's going to be the, the people like to talk about the new normal. This will be the new normal for them. Now, thankfully, we live in a country currently where we're not going to be martyred for our faith, Lord willing. Uh, but people do suffer for their faith. Uh, we have a different, maybe it's not a stoning kind of persecution, thankfully, uh, like Stephen endured. But we're starting to see glimmers of, of, of having consequences for being a Christian, having consequences for being part of an evangelical church. We're seeing that start to take place. And here's the thing, like, God never told us that wouldn't happen. We're in a world that's not our home. People hate this message. Let's just make sure they hate the message and not us because of how we treat people. But just being labeled a Christian, Jesus said they hated me, they're gonna hate you. They didn't hate Jesus because of anything he did because he was perfect, he always loved perfectly. He always did everything he was rightly so. But let's let hate people let people hate us because of the message of Jesus not because of our actions or how we treat people don't prove people right about evangelicals let's let's see people who because we believe that God loved us first that we want to love God and love others and that's not at odds with the reality that we believe that Jesus is the way the truth the life 
because we think the most loving message ever is that God did not leave the people to fend for themselves, but sent his son to die a death that we deserve to redeem a people to himself. And the sixth thing is, the last thing, is that cities experience great joy. We talked about that earlier. Like, what a testimony. My friend Josh Howerton is a pastor in Dallas. He is convinced of this. He says, people are no longer on a truth quest. Even though people still care about finding the truth, they're on a happiness quest. That's our culture right now. They want to find happiness. They might think that is linked to truth sometimes, but most people are just on a happiness quest. Like, whatever I need to do to make myself more happy, what do people tell you? Do whatever makes you happy. I'm just not happy. You know, leave this this relationship because I'm not happy. Whatever, Whatever it is, happy, 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 happy. How incredible would it be if we could see people in our community realize that it's not wrong to look for happiness. They're just finding it in a place that will never actually deliver. They need another rush. They need another relationship. They need another toy. They need another experience. That's everybody's favorite word today. They need another experience. And none of those things are bad things. It's good to have a relationship, and it's good to have an experience, and it's good, and it's great. If you can have new things, that's wonderful. But when those things become God things, we wonder why people are on a quest for happiness. And they believe there's going to be gained by disobeying God, and there's to be gained by obeying him. Got to go around God if I'm looking for, rather than right to him. And we can say, hey, we're going to show you someone who is going to make you happy, but maybe not exactly as you think. He's going to bring you something that can only be found in him. And your understanding of happiness is going to change because bad circumstances are still going to come your way. But you're still going to feel loved and accepted and approved of and known. Why? Because you're receiving a love that's eternal, that doesn't change, and that not just loves you back, loves you first while you were a sinner. There is joy in the city. Why? Not because they had a great new experience. But because they met Jesus and all the quests they had in their life to find meaning and belonging and purpose. I mean, Samaritan people, if anyone felt outcasted, it would have been them. And here, out of the gate, Jesus says, you're gonna go there like second. Like start here, Judea, Jerusalem. That's where we're going. And what they do, they received it. And here are the ones that should have known better, the people in Jerusalem, and they rejected it. They're the ones that knew the story. Felt God had been working to bring about a Messiah throughout history. And, and here's Samaria. Here are people, maybe they were bottom. Maybe they were down and out. Maybe they were like the woman at the well who was told that she had five husbands. And the guy, she told Jesus she had five husbands. And the person she was, sorry, Jesus told her that she had had five husbands and the man she was with now was not her husband. In other words, she had kept looking and it kept not working out and we don't want to judge her. Who knows what happened? But it wasn't working. And here's Jesus going, I'm going to offer you something that'll not just work, but it's true and fulfilling and real and lasts. And it's a relationship with me. That's the message we have. In a happiness-finding world, that does God want you to be happy? Yes, I believe he does. He wants us to be happy in him. In him. 
because he loves us enough to know that's the only place where it really actually transpires and lasts. Let's believe that together and let's make that known since Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the book of Acts and how it tells us the story of how we are even here today as recipients of your word. So I'm thankful for those first believers that you scattered after Stephen's death to take the good news of the cross and resurrection to the rest of the world. And we're inspired by Stephen's faith. Lord, I am thankful that the same reality of him seeing you standing to receive him is the spiritual future for all of us who are in Christ. That we will be received as your children, as your people, into your kingdom for all time. We're thankful that the promise of that is now. And we look forward to the full realization of it in the days to come. So I ask that you bring joy to Tallahassee found in Christ. That our church planters and missionaries in their different cities and different countries around the world will be able to bring joy found in Christ. I ask that we will be people who stop being on a happiness quest because we've already found it in Jesus. And let us just believe the truths of the gospel. Let us live our lives with joy, not because we're pretending that everything is okay, because this world is broken, but because we believe that you are sovereign and you are in control and that you keep your promises and that you so love the world that you gave your only son. So our believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I'm thankful for that good news and thankful those first believers brought that good news to the rest of the world. Let us do the same. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand up and sing some good news together.